listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Um, an independent, non-denominational church like us. Uh, but we've wanted to see ourselves as a larger, as a part of the larger church, seeing ourselves as belonging to the church. And one of the things we've been utilizing for that is TMTs um, that have really connected us to church great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers. And so we're getting to know our faith family, these people that have lived and gone before us and have set an example for us. Um, so Christina's going to come and share uh, another TMT. Good morning, everybody. Uh, today I'm going to talk about John Wesley, who might be a familiar name to many of you. Uh, John Wesley was an 18th century revivalist from England, and he is commonly known as the founder of Methodism. Um, John Wesley grew up quite poor as a child. His father was occasionally taken off to debtor's prison, unfortunately, um, at least once. And he, but he became a very wealthy man as an adult because of his writings and his books that sold. Um, his lifetime earnings were about 30,000 pounds, which I'm told translates in today's money to about $50 million. So he was incredibly wealthy as an adult. Um, and early in his career, uh, Wesley became a teacher at Oxford, and he was given a salary of 30 pounds a year, which was plenty for him to live off of, um, and then had some extra. And so he was using the extra because he enjoyed that, having, we can all imagine living in a fairly poor childhood and then growing up and having enough money. And one day he had bought some paintings to hang in his rooms in Oxford. And, um, and so he had those brought in and hung up and his rooms looked very nice. And that evening a servant girl came in to clean his room and he noticed that she didn't have a coat and it was very cold outside. So he wanted, he reached into his pocket to give her money for a coat and realized he didn't have any because he had spent all his money. Uh, on pictures and that sort of thing. And he said this to himself, will thy master say, well done, good and faithful steward. Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? Um, so a pretty stern rebuke towards himself. And so not long after this, Wesley began to intentionally limit his expenses so that he could give the excess to the poor. So one of the early years that he records doing this, his living expenses were 28 pounds for the year, and his earning was 30 pounds for the year. So he gave away two pounds. Uh, the next year, his income actually doubled, um, but he kept his living expenses the same. So instead of giving away two pounds, he gave away 32 pounds. And he continued to do this pretty much for the rest of his life. Uh, near the end of his life, one year, he recorded um, an income of 1,400 pounds, but he lived on 30. So he gave the rest away. Um, so he just kept his lifestyle the same so that he could give more and more every year. And Wesley believed that any money a Christian had been given uh, was given to him by the Lord for the sake of the kingdom and needed to go right back into the kingdom. He said that we don't own our money. It's lent to us for our own good. So we're allowed to take care of our own needs and necessities and the needs and necessities of our family. In fact, we should do that. But anything that's left over is for the kingdom and for others. And so Wesley believed uh, that primarily that extra money should be used to build up the kingdom, spread the gospel, and help the poor and oppressed. Uh, one of the things I read about Wesley is that he, near the end of his life, said that he, except for his books, which he couldn't spend, he would be the executor of his own will, uh, meaning there wouldn't be anything left over when he was dead except books. Um, so somebody else would have to deal with those. Um, so Wesley believed that just as the Son of God became poor so that we might become rich, so we should do the same for others whenever we are able. 
Today's scripture is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Excuse me, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Have you ever had a bad investment strategy? A bad plan for building wealth? When I was a kid, I had a plan to be wealthy. But not in, not in like dollars, because of course that's not the most important currency for kids. The most important currency for kids is candy. So I developed a plan to become super wealthy with candy. Anytime I'd go, you know, Halloween, birthday parties, treats at school, whatever, I wouldn't eat the candy. I would take it home and stock it away in a drawer that soon became known as my candy collection. And before long, I had a treasure trove of candy. I was, I was the envy of all the kids of the neighborhood. This, this whole drawer that kind of glistened almost as you opened it, you know, with this, these sparkling candies. And I was, I was the Warren Buffett of kids in my neighborhood. Like, I mean, I had wealth. I was, you know, they were like, wow, Dave, you know, are you never, I don't know, I don't know when I'll eat some, you know. It was, it was just kind of a, a really amazing thing that I had built up all this wealth. But then one day, I decided to taste some of my candy. And this was probably like literally a couple years into my candy stockpiling event. And it was terrible. To my disappointment, the candy tasted awful. It tasted kind of like a blending of, like the Snickers tasted like, you know, fruity and kind of, it was just weird. It was like they had all kind of, the flavors had all kind of blended together. So now I was the proud owner of an entire drawer of terrible tasting expired candy. It was a bad investment plan. It just was bad. But why? Well, it was short-sighted. I had failed to appreciate the fact that candy is actually food, and it has an expiration date. You might, maybe it doesn't like rot, but it, it goes bad eventually to where it doesn't taste the way that it's supposed to, especially in a dresser drawer with a bunch of other candy in it. So while it was kind of cool for me to be known as the kid with the huge candy stash for a while, in the end... I was left with nothing. I was left with nothing that was really of any value. And, you know, of course, kids aren't the only ones with bad investment strategies, right? We adults do this kind of thing all the time. Our stuff is just bigger and more expensive, but honestly, it's just as temporary and often just as silly. Um, I was reading about this this week. Professional athletes are really known for this, right? Um, the average NBA career, I looked this up, 4.5 years. 
So it doesn't last very long. And a lot of times these guys come out of poverty, and so they, they get a ton of money in a short period of time. And, of course, they get all the things that they've always wanted in life, right? They get the great, the fancy sports cars. They get the boats. They get the lakefront properties, all the clothes and the shoes, new every day. And then the money dries up, right? They get an injury or the money dries up. Their, their career ends, and pretty soon they can't make all the payments, and they go bankrupt. This actually happens pretty regularly, it's a bad investment strategy. They're just like me. They have the same problem as I did. They invest all their resources into stuff that doesn't last. They fail to put anything away for the future. They fail to keep the long perspective in mind. And see, a good investment strategy is one that considers what you need today, but also looks to the future. It keeps that long-term perspective in mind. And the best possible investments are the ones that last the longest. They don't have expiration dates like my candy collection. They don't go out of style like clothes and shoes. And they don't depreciate like cars and boats. And that's precisely the point Jesus is making in our text today. He's saying many of us have bad investment strategies because they're too short-sighted. We're just not looking far enough ahead. We're investing in stuff that has soon-coming expiration dates not making it any investments at all in things that are really going to last. Now, before we dive into this parable here, this little short story Jesus tells, I want you to notice the context for Jesus' teaching here. He's approached by this guy who's saying, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this is a common thing that would happen because the law of Moses um, described how inheritance was supposed to be passed down. And it depended on your birth order and the number of siblings and that kind of a thing. And if there was a dispute, oftentimes people would go to the rabbi, the teacher of the law, to say, hey, will you handle this dispute? Who's supposed to get what and how much and, and, and that sort of a thing? And clearly Jesus is not wanting this role in his life. So he says, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? But Jesus instead decides to use this opportunity to sidestep what the guy wants, and he uses it as an opportunity to warn against the power and deception of money and possessions. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, take care, watch out, be on guard against all covetousness. Some translations say greed. It says, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We just need to hear Jesus say that, right? Like, we just need to let that sit on us for a second. Like, watch out. Be on your guard. For a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Jesus is saying, you need to watch out. You need to be careful. Be on guard. This is a really dangerous temptation that's going to be super powerful. And the, and the temptation is that you're going to think that life is found in having a lot of stuff and money that your life is actually going to be better, that you're going to be happier if you can get a lot of stuff. And Jesus is saying that's a huge lie. It's a very, very old, very, very powerful lie, one that we're all still prone to believing. And to illustrate his point, Jesus tells this parable about a man with a really bad investment strategy. And um, lest we look down our nose at this guy, we need to realize that this investment strategy, it pretty much sums up the American dream, doesn't it? I mean, when you look at it closely, it pretty much is describing what all of us have been raised to think that's the good life when you get there. So um, we need to put ourselves into this parable, and I have been all week, so I'm anxious for you to join me. 
Um, now, as we go through this parable, I want you to notice three things about bad investment strategies, all right? Because that's what Jesus is, is pointing out to us. And first of all, we see that bad investment strategies are selfish. They're selfish. This guy's plan is self-possessive and entirely self-focused. So selfishness is definitely the root problem here that leads to all sorts of other problems with his investment strategy. Notice, there's no consideration here for God, for what God wants, or for the good of others or the community. There's not even a thought given to that. The man clearly views all of his possessions as his own. And so then we see that the contrary is also true. Not only does he possess his possessions, but they're now possessing him, right? Which is always the danger, that we, pos- we start off possessing something, but pretty soon it possesses us. It owns us. We can't, we're not free anymore um, because it is ruling over us. And boy, is this guy self-absorbed. It's really hard to miss this. Like Jesus uses kind of hyperbole here in verses 18 and 19. But look at all the I and the my statements. Eleven times in two verses, this guy uses the words my or I. He's pretty self-absorbed. Even when he's considering what to do with all his excess, look, he only consults himself. You ever needed wisdom? And then you said, I think I'll just ask myself. That's how you know you're a pretty selfish person. Like, I know a brilliant person to ask. Me. That's what he does. He just consults himself. He only talks to himself. And here's the deal, friends. This is maybe where we just start. When God blesses us with more than what we need, it should never be just a conversation between us and ourselves, right? Um, It obviously needs to start as a conversation with God. It's like Christina was talking about with Wesley, right? Lord, what would you have me to do with your stuff? Because that's the reality. He's the owner of it, right? So we might as well talk to the owner of it and say, hey, you've given me more than what I need. I have all my needs met. What would you like me to do with your stuff? And that doesn't just mean money. You know, we're so tempted to, to make all of our giving and, and our talks about wealth, about money, but that means all the currencies of your life. So your time, your talents, your treasures, your wisdom. If you have extra in any of those kinds of things, it's important that you're praying about it, that you're asking the Lord, what do you want done with this? You've obviously given me more than I need. I'd like to know what you want done with it. And then after talking to God about it, I think it's really super wise to bring your Christian community in it. So obviously if you're married, uh, it's great to have conversations with your spouse about it. But I've found um, really helpful conversations in my D group about this very passage. Like I remember one year when we were studying this passage and all of us were just feeling super guilty about it. We said, okay, we have to do something to be more accountable about our money because we're so privatized. Like we don't talk about sex, money, or politics in this culture. You just can't go there. But they're important things to talk about, right? They're important important pieces of discipleship. So in our D group, we said, we're all going to bring our tax returns. We're just going to be completely open, put it all out on the table with our brothers here and say, this is how much money I made. And, and we're going to try to itemize how much we've spent on fluff. And it turns out I spent a lot of money on ice cream that year. And it was kind of embarrassing. It was like, oh man, that much money we spent on ice cream? Uh, You know, we like ice cream in our house and ice cream is a great, delicious, wonderful, heaven-given treat. Um, so I don't think it's bad for us to eat ice cream sometimes, but it was good for us to just say, okay, well, we're obviously eating a lot of ice cream. Our bodies don't necessarily need it. Maybe we can consider how we could use that differently. Christian community helps us to do this better. If you're just going to have conversations with yourself, it's going to be very difficult to be faithful with the resources that God has given you. 
So selfishness is the sin at the root of this guy's bad investment strategy. The whole thing is aimed entirely at him and his own benefit, what he wants. And in order to avoid that, there's, there's really one big question we need to ask here. And that's exactly the question Christina was teaching us. And that is, am I the owner of this stuff or am I the manager? That's really the question you have to wrestle with. Like, am I the owner or am I the manager? Because Wesley's right. Christians don't really own anything. We believe that everything we have is a gift from our Father, right? So our very breath, every single moment we are alive is a gift from God. And we're not guaranteed another one, by the way, which is the other point of this passage. But our, our finances, our ability to make money, our education that you were given. You know, you could have been born in a little small village in East Africa having to walk for water six hours a day. Then how great would your intellectual capabilities be? You know, everything that you have, your ability, your situation in life has all been given to you by God. And so he's the rightful owner of it. We're just managers of it. So if you find yourself saying lots of eyes and mys and minds, you know, maybe you need to read the Minosaurus book we used to read with Dawson. How many of you parents read the Minosaurus book? It's really helpful for us parents too. The Minosaurus, we have to, we have to learn like, hey, no, that's, that's not what the Bible's teaching us. It's not mine. It's actually God's. It's time that we come back to that reality that everything we have, everything that we are belongs to him. And so there should be no conversations with ourselves about his stuff. Now, like Christina said, he's perfectly happy for us to use the things that he's given us for our good, for our benefit, even for our joy and our pleasure. I enjoy one of the most frivolous things in the world, walleye fishing. It's just frivolous. It's, it's not really helping anybody. I love it. It's wonderful. It's a gift from my father. All right? I don't think God um, says we can't enjoy anything like that either. But it means that we're constantly having this conversation back and forth. Us, the manager, with the owner saying, what would you like to do? What's reasonable with your stuff? I mean, just think about it. If, if you had a, you know, a bunch of properties and, and possessions here and you decided, I'm going to move overseas for a couple years. I'm going to hire a manager to take care of all this stuff. And while you're gone, all of a sudden you hear that the manager's driving your cars 100 miles an hour and he's saying, hey, you want to come party at my house? And he's using your bank accounts to spend money on all the, the things that he wants. You would be like, what in the world? You're the manager. That's my stuff. How come you're claiming it as your own? Well, that's exactly the situation that we find ourselves in with God. We don't possess anything, and his stuff is never to be used only on ourselves. So that's the first big problem we see, selfishness in this guy's investment strategy. But that's not all. Selfishness isn't the only problem. It's also terribly short-sighted. So for years, this parable has really bothered me because this guy's investment strategy sounds so eerily similar to the American dream, doesn't it? I mean, look at it. Like, I'm going to work super hard. I'm going to make more than I need to live on. I'm going to stockpile this war chest of money or, or wealth, or in his case, grain. And then I'm going to just kick back at the end of my life and take it easy and drink little drinks with umbrellas and sit on a beach and, you know, do all kinds of things like that. And that sounds a lot like the American dream, doesn't it? Just, just take it easy. But there's one massive problem with this whole philosophy of, of just doing life, working so hard in your life to save up for this little sliver of time at the end to just take it easy and do nothing. And that is it fails to appreciate the fact that you're going to die. You're going to die. That's what the guy's missing, right? You could die at any moment. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Little did the man know that his planning was all for nothing. His work was all for nothing. As our Ecclesiastes passage says today, it was vanity of vanities. His plan failed to appreciate that. All of our stuff has an expiration date. It's not just my candy collection. All of our stuff has an expiration date, and that expiration date is the day we die. It's a date that's unknown to us, but it's coming sooner than most of us think. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about this sobering reminder. I told you today's sobering, but Ecclesiastes is like the big party pooper of the Bible, right? It just says all the stuff you've ever thought was going to make you happy, it won't, and you're going to die, and somebody's going to get you stuff you worked really hard for. And you're like, whoa, that's, that was an awful downer. But it's, it's trying to tell you something really, really important. I love what David Gibson writes about, his, about the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, he says, The preacher will argue that wisdom, pleasure, work, and possessions are very often the bubbles we live in to insulate ourselves from reality. And his needle, the sharp point he uses to burst the bubbles, is death. It is the great reality facing all human beings as they go about their business on earth. Death is the one ultimate certainty that we erase from our minds and busy ourselves to avoid facing. And isn't that true? We're all working so hard to push from our minds the reality that death is coming and it's coming soon and we don't know when it's coming. We're pretending that we're going to live forever. We're setting up shop here like like this current way that the earth is. That's the way it's going to be. Forgetting about the new earth to come. But Jesus says that's incredibly foolish, incredibly foolish. You know that most Americans are living um, and saving up and planning for a short season of their life that many of them never, ever get there. I just read about so many, so many obituaries, so many stories I read about. People die when they're just retirement age. It's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I just feel so bad for them, you know, because it's like they've been lied to their whole life. Or they get there, and it's almost impossible for them to enjoy. They have so many health problems, right? I mean, that happens too all the time. You know, we, we, this is a really sad reality. We are taught all of our lives to work yourself into the ground. You struggle through your job so you can get to this little sliver at the end of your life, and then you can finally enjoy it. And there's actually lots of books being written now, uh, people saying, no, that's not the way to do life. Take like many retirements along the way. These are even secular books, like saying, take time off along the way, because chances are when you get to that age, you're not going to be healthy enough to enjoy it. Right? Um, that's not even Christian advice. That's like people in the world just saying, like, you've been lied to. That's not a good strategy. Most people don't make it there. And then what, you know? But we work ourselves into the ground to stockpile up this money, and we're just too fragile. You know, something always happens. We get the terminal illness. We lose our spouse. Something in our family system changes that makes us, that our situation radically different. All of our time and our effort and our energy saved up for this little window of time. Now, I know and I believe Dave Ramsey is right, right? I think you should, I think it's important not to lean on the government entirely for your later years in life. Like, I think it's wise to save up a little bit of money. Janie and I invest a little bit each year into our Roth IRAs. But the big idea is that you don't spend the bulk of your time and your energy and your thought planning for this little short window of your life. That's what Jesus is getting at here, right? I don't want to spend the bulk of my time doing that. There's a good chance that I'll never get to use it. And then where will it go? Like Ecclesiastes says, well, it'll go to my kids, which, sorry, guys, but there's nothing that much worse for people than getting a whole bunch of money that they didn't work for. 
right? I can't think of many things that are worse for people, right? Just getting a huge pile of money that you didn't work for, that's not usually good for people. It usually changes them in bad ways. And so here's the reality. If your investment strategy is focused on the next, mm, say, 20, 30, 40, or even 50 years, it's terribly short-sighted. It's terribly short-sighted. If you're just looking at, like, how do I land the end of this life, it's way, way too short-sighted. Um, and I'm going to use this demonstration. Can you girls come up here? So think about your life like this long extension cord. Um, and the girls are going to hold it up so you can kind of see how long it is. And you'll notice there's no end to it because this is the reality of you being an eternal creature. Right? God's made you to live forever. So at the end of this life, you don't, your, your life is not over. You, you just go on into eternity and you wait for the resurrection when Jesus comes back and puts everything right. But this little green piece of tape represents your time in this life on earth. Okay? And I've drawn a little black line around the end of that green piece of tape that represents retirement. If you can see that, okay? So that's what most of us are spending our whole lives gearing up for. Like all this green time here is spent saving for that little black sliver of time that might happen or might not. And we spend no time at all thinking about all the orange part, the rest of eternity, the next trillion years. We're not even thinking about that. Like, what's that going to be like? And am I stockpiling up for that? Am I putting anything away for that? That's Jesus' point entirely. Thanks, girls. His point entirely is not like, it's wrong to save up something for those later years in life. I think that's wise. I think that's a good thing to do. But don't put all your efforts and energy there. Be stockpiling up for the next trillion years. Make a longer investment. This guy's investment strategy is short-sighted. It's entirely bound up in his fragile little life. And, and he has nothing saved for the future. He's invested nothing for the kingdom of God that's coming. So that's the second piece. This guy's strategy is selfish. It's short-sighted. But thirdly and lastly, it's undiversified. Look at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So notice... Jesus isn't saying he shouldn't have any treasure. He shouldn't own anything. He's saying he's laid up a bunch of treasure for himself, and he doesn't have any richness towards God. So he's got an undiversified strategy. And anybody that you go to to talk about investments, you know, financial planner or investment guru, anybody that is worth their salt is going to tell you, you need a strategy that is diversified, right? If you go to your person and you say, I'd like to put all my money on Bitcoin, they should try to talk you out of that, right? Maybe you saw it on a YouTube video and you got really excited like, oh, this is going to go crazy and I'm going to be, you know, a millionaire overnight. They should try to talk you out of it because it dramatically increases the risk in your scenario, right? You, could, you risk losing it all if you put it all on one thing. Well, that's what this guy's doing. He essentially just has one investment. He put it all on Bitcoin, He's just got one thing. He's got all of his resources 100% invested in earthly stuff for his own comforts and pleasures. And here's the craziest part of this parable. This guy thinks he's rich. Everyone around him thinks he's rich. We read it and think, I wouldn't mind having that scenario. He's pretty rich. Jesus thinks he's poor. Jesus thinks he's dirt poor. He sees this man as a fool, as someone who doesn't have a clue. Normally, we look at rich people and we say, wow, we admire them. Wow, they have so much. Wow, they must be so smart. Jesus says, this guy's a fool. 
He doesn't have a clue. He has one type of investment, and it's terribly temporary. Like Jesus feels for this guy like many of us feel for those people that put all their stock in Enron. What a downer, right? He feels for this guy like my friends felt for me with the this expired candy collection. Wow, what a lot of work for nothing, right? He's got a ton of everything that doesn't matter, and he's got nothing that does matter. Adam Phillips in the New York Times said this. He said, our excesses are the best clues to our own poverty. Think about that. Our excesses are the best clues to our own poverty and our best way of concealing it from ourselves. So watch this in your life where you have too much. There's always a poverty across the hallway from it. Do you see that in this guy's life? I mean, he's only got excess in one area, really. He's got a ton of money. Or in that day, grain, which was the equivalent of money. He's got a ton of money. He's got barns full of it. But you notice his poverty in every other area? He's not rich in relationships. There's not one other person that is mentioned that he's going to share all this with. He's not rich towards God. He's not purchased any stock in God's kingdom to come. He's poor. He's broke. It's all about to go down the tubes. He has no other investments. It's terribly undiversified. David Gibson says in Living Life Backward, his book on Ecclesiastes, he said, people who follow Jesus often lose sight of the world to come. And isn't that true? I mean, I'm there too. It's amazing how it just doesn't take me long at all to just start thinking and working and gathering and doing all these things like I'm only just going to live this life now, right? But he says, Christians, people who follow Jesus often lose sight of the world to come. We become resident Christians rather than nomadic Christians. We become fully integrated in this world rather than viewing ourselves as passing through. And we do this by living as if our greatest treasures are here and now. Our greatest treasures are here and now. We display our sense of permanence by our lifestyle choices, the homes we live in, the money we spend, the churches we build, the investments we pursue, and the priorities we live for. We hold the things of this world too tightly and lavish our affections on them too freely. We strive and strain for the same kind of gain as everyone else around us. You find that in your life? Man, that's true about me. I can get so motivated towards the same kind of things, the same kind of gain as everybody else. And then I'm like, what's different about me as a Christian? Why am I not motivated to the things like Wesley was? Jesus knew this would be a big temptation for us. That's why Matthew says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And hopefully at this point you're saying, Okay, Pastor Dave, I get it. I am a manager. I am not the owner of all the things that God has given me. I, want to, I don't want to have a bad investment strategy. I want to be rich towards God. Now, how do I do that? Well, our passage actually doesn't tell us, but Jesus is going to tell them a few verses later. So we end our passage in verse 21, but look at down. Um, I'll just read it to you because you don't have it, but look at verse 32 through 34. He says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There will your heart be also. How do you get rich towards God? Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Basically this, invest in God and people. People are the thing that God loves the most. 
So if you find yourself doing that, you are buying stock in the kingdom of God. Everything else that you own, by the way, is the stuff of future rummage sales and landfills. I hate to just jump you to the very end of it, but it is. Everything else that you own is the future stuff of rummage sales and landfills. It's just going to be garbage eventually, right? It's not going to last, but people last. Our relationship with the Lord lasts. David Gibson says, It is possible to know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. If the love of money is a root of evil, then Ecclesiastes, and indeed the whole Bible, has a beautifully simple solution. Here's how to sever the root, stop the rot, and kill the evil. Spend your money on others. Give it away. Do it regularly, gladly, generously, and you will be happy. Ha! There it is. Jesus and Gibson are saying the same thing. Giving is the way to become rich towards God, especially when we give to the most needy. And here's the greatest part. You have a zillion opportunities. You and I have a zillion opportunities. It's like we're, we're buying Netflix at one cent all the time, you know? It's just, it's just easy for us. There's, you know, Ukrainian refugees that we can give to. There's uh, famine in East Africa, children starving that we can give to. Uh, we can sponsor children through Adam's Thermal Foundation in Ethiopia. You're going to hear about that more next week. Our team just got back from there. What a wonderful opportunity. You can volunteer your time, another great resource, and give money to the Gathering Well, this local organization that and we've been a part of that really blesses and encourages and strengthens local adoptive and foster care families. Um, you can come to Kickball and Cookies on Saturday morning. Just give a little bit of your time and throw your shoulder out like I did yesterday. Um, and, and, and just invest in some kids. Wonderful time, 10 a.m. Saturday mornings. We're going to keep that going, by the way, throughout the fall. We've just had such a good time with that. Um, you can donate a car. You might have an extra car laying around. Used cars are in such extreme need around this community. Donate it to Shift Garage. They'll get it to a needy family that really needs it to get to work. Or if you know how to fix stuff, cars, you can donate your time to Shift Garage. And they'll have you help fixing people's cars for them in the name of Jesus. There's just I could go on and on for hours about all these opportunities locally and around the globe. There's just no excuse for us. Like everything, There's more opportunity for us to have compassion fatigue where we're just worn out by all the requests than not to have any opportunity at all, right? So you have tons of opportunity to become rich, and this is, in fact, how you do it. Now, if you're asking yourself, okay, I get it. I get how to become rich, but how do I become motivated? Well, that's a smart question because most of the time, motivation is the problem. Um, we know how to be healthy. We know how to eat healthy. Broccoli, apples, chicken breast, we know that, but we want Doritos and ice cream and, and pizza. And so it's all about motivation, right? We, we know um, how to work out. We know the workouts that we're supposed to do. It's just hard to get doing them, right? Um, motivation is the key. And this is super, super hard. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to be motivated towards the things that I want, the things that are pleasurable to me. It's easy for me to save up for those things and to stash money away for those things. It gives my brain a little kickback. Harder for me to be motivated to give things away. So how do we do that? Well, we're going to need supernatural motivation. We need motivation, first of all, from the Holy Spirit, which we've been talking about in this season after Pentecost. But secondly, God has provided supernatural motivation just like Wesley said. By looking at the one who was incredibly rich. You understand Jesus has a nicer zip code than any of us could ever dream of. Right? A gated community. Um, and he left it all for us. 
He was rich and he became poor so that you and I through his poverty can become rich. And that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ, our dear Jesus, left all his riches of his home in heaven and came to earth to live as a poor man, a homeless man. The Bible says the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. And then he died the death that was meant for us. He took all of our spiritual poverty and sin on himself on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, breaking the power of sin and death so that we could have life, so that we could have hope, so that we could have an inheritance that's incredibly outlandish. We're offered an inheritance in the family of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we would just welcome you into that today. Please don't give anything in the offering today because you need to receive first. That's the rule. You never come to Jesus and give anything first. You receive and then you give, right? For those of us who are Christians, though, it's by looking at what Jesus did for you, that you were poor and he made you rich by becoming poor for you. It's by looking at that that you see all that's been done for you, all that's been given to you, and you start to say, I think I can part with my candy collection. It's kind of crappy anyway, you know? It doesn't taste very good anyway. I think I can part with these little things that aren't going to last anyway. I think I can give them up because look at what was, look at what was done for me. Look at how rich he was. He became poor so that I, through his poverty, might become rich. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is for all of us here at Life Church that we would become filthy, stinking rich, rich towards God. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, hard as it is to read and wrestle with. We know that you love us and that you are telling us the truth here. Um. We ask that you would just give us the ability to live this out. Make the change in us as you did in Wesley. Um, give us that Holy Spirit heart. That we're not giving stuff away as a way to try to earn what you've done for us, but we're giving it because we couldn't earn it. You did it for us. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.